we talk about we want to build you know new community centers and anchors and we typically think oh development it should have retail it should maybe have some offices and so on and so forth but you know schools are as much as anything also a neighborhood hub and you know a lot of people utilize these uh facilities every single day and you know so there's nothing wrong with also you know offices mixed use retail and schools being part of what drives the development around a compact neighborhood which then gets you all the advantages of you know people being able to use up you know means other than their cars to get to schools or the offices or to uh, retail developments and also it you know increase the property tax collections which are really important to schools uh, our four cities are essentially landlocked by other big cities so unless you want to really engage in hostile annexations of other big cities the property tax base for the schools in um, northwest arkansas is going to diminish over time the, uh, so if you as a school want to continue to have higher property tax collections, you need to increase the value of the land around you. And the way you would do that is by building in more compact fashion. So the property tax that you can collect at the same property tax rate from each parcel of land is greater than the way we're doing it right now. So Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Placemaking Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Mervin Jabaraj. He is the director of Center for Business and Economic Research there at the University of Arkansas, and uh, we're happy to have him on today. Thank you. Just uh, real quick, can we get a Cliff Nose version of your background and coming up? to uh, the, the Director of Center for Business and Economic Research at the university. Yeah, um, I uh, was originally at the University to study in natural relations. I found myself taking some economics classes as part of the core requirements to get a degree in natural relations. Loved the subject so much that I added it as a major. And as it turned out, uh, ended up with that as my, uh, you know, uh, my career now as an economist. Um, and uh, since then, uh, I've been working at the center for several years now, since about 2007, and I became the director in 2017. Nice. So what made you curious about the subject to begin with? What's, what uh, brought the passion for this this type of research? Well, for economics in general, it was just a sort of toolkit that you you use to analyze different problems and suppose you you know if you're being as uh, cocky as economists like to be you can use that toolkit to apply um, apply that toolkit to just about any uh, question one might have uh, about uh, policy or social conditions or any number of issues and I think the the toolkit is what uh, you know appealed to me the most as a as a way of thinking about issues and, you know, using statistics and uh, some of my theory also to answer those questions and related to how human beings make decisions. Talk to me a little bit about the toolkit. What's, what's included in that, uh, that thought process? Well, um, 
so there's obviously a lot of uh, statistical underpinning to all of this, so, but there's got to be a reason to think about um, or to use certain statistical processes to analyze different questions. And I think that's where the theory comes in. And so uh, obviously the theory would differ uh, depending on who's interpreting it. And there are competing theories in economics as well that you can use to analyze different questions. Um, so that there isn't, you know, an orthodoxy, there's only one way to answer this question kind of thing. So you keep that in mind while you're trying to uh, sometimes analyze very complex um, issues. And I think what appeals to me about all of that is that you, you don't shy away, you know, in some of the very hard sciences, you would shy away from answering something really complex because it's hard to get enough data to make a conclusive, definite, you know, a conclusive uh, argument about something. But in economics, you might have a theory that sort of explains how all of that works and you would use that um, to try to explain. And of course, someone else might use a competing theory to do that. It's fine, um, as long as everybody's upfront about what their assumptions going into a certain analysis are. Absolutely. I think it's it's going to be a fun discussion because you do have that different viewpoint uh, from kind of more of our standard guests. Um, you're you're looking at it more from a statistical uh, worldview, whereas ours are you know more so uh, related to land land cost and and what the the developer will can make work in the location. But a lot of the same concepts are utilized. Uh, by by developers, some form or fashion, and and in some ways, uh, some less less developed, and some more on the on the same vein as what you're discussing right now. But can you talk to us a little bit about you're here in in Fayetteville at the University of Arkansas, which uh, kind of creates a uh, a unique location for which to kind of view here more at the macroeconomic level, you know, with, with Fortune 500 companies, quite a few in the area. How do you believe that, you know, your, your time here in, in Fayetteville has kind of shaped or, or has it shaped your kind of worldviews on, on macroeconomics? Um, yeah, I think in the sense that you typically do not expect uh, the kind of economic development and broad-based, you know, placemaking in general in the community are size, uh, but it's only possible because you have, uh, you know, three Fortune 500 companies that are headquartered here, several that have offices here in Northwest Arkansas, large offices here in Northwest Arkansas. And, um, you know, in many other places, the placemaking grows naturally as a part of the city growth. So if you think about the big cities on the coasts or Maybe not everybody has great placemaking. Uh, so maybe let's look at Europe uh, and think of the major cities in Europe. Those places grew organically over time and placemaking came with it. Um, here in Northwest Arkansas, you don't have a single large city. Uh, where I live, it's the largest, uh, you know, about 94, 95,000 people, uh, which isn't even close to being the largest city in Arkansas. And certainly is not the largest city in this region either. And so it's really, you know, four large, you know, four smaller cities, Fayetteville, Springdale, Benton, that kind of drive the growth in this region. Um, and that's very different than other places 
And so by right, you know, a city of 90,000, a city of 50,000, 60 or 70 or 80,000 shouldn't have the level of amenities and placemaking tools uh, that would be available traditionally in those communities. And we have that in large part because of the commitments from those uh, three Fortune 500 companies headquartered here, as well as the other ones that have large offices here in Northwest Arkansas, to try to develop the communities in a way that feels welcoming and in a way that uh, will help them recruit uh, their employees to come live and work here as well. Yeah, let's let's spend a second on that. I'm, you know, we've thrown out placemaking a lot, and we've thrown out kind of these these Fortune 500 companies. It's kind of a different way of thinking um, for for larger employers to really invest in the community at whole to know that that investment will yield returns that won't only just benefit them as a company, but uh, the, the greater area. And, and honestly, uh, it, that investment really yields positive returns for the other Fortune 500 companies in the area as well. So uh, I just want to spend a second to talk about how that kind of perspective uh, and, and how that looks really. What, what type of initiatives are we talking about for placemaking? Yeah. So I think, you know, to your earlier point, thinking about how the companies sort of do stuff to benefit each other, you know, what the investments by some Fortune 500 companies help the other ones as well. And I think what's different about this region is the sense of partnership that you get uh, from the Fortune 500 companies, in part because they're not really competing against each other. So if you go to other clusters that you might find, uh, say, in Silicon Valley and stuff, which they do, you know, partner with each other or New York or something, you have a lot of financial institutions there. They're competitors to each other. Um, and here you're not really in the three major Fortune 500 companies are not in the same industry. Um, and so they're not per se competing against each other. In fact, they actually partner with each other, you know, buy each other's goods and services. Um, so it's a lot easier from that sense compared to other communities, not having to think about, okay, well, and invest all this, but my competitors are not doing it. I'm doing something at my expense to help my competitor. Here's more of a partnership, and that helps. Um, get this feeling that in Northwest Arkansas, that you have this sort of competition. Now, obviously, there's some friendly competition between the four major cities. Uh, there are, you know, Bentonville Boosters and Fayetteville Boosters and Rogers Boosters and Springdale Boosters. They each have their own chambers of commerce and some competing priorities and different. Uh, styles of doing things, but you know, in general, we've also been able to work together and bring together regional projects, whether that's um, the greenway and the bicycle trails and all the investment we've seen in bicycling, which goes towards placemaking here, you know, making, you know, adding fun amenities to this region. Uh, the downtown developments that have happened sort of in a coordinated fashion among the four big cities, it's not uh, you know, one city doing one thing, but now you have recognized downtown districts that are, you know, similar and feel obviously very different and different composition of businesses and so on. But there is a downtown mechanism in each of these four cities. And we have some agreement on understanding of what we would like our overall development to look like, even though we haven't necessarily coordinated the rulemaking 
among the four cities for that particular thing. But like, you know, I think we have generally similar rules when it comes to downtown districts, but it doesn't apply to the entire city as a whole. I don't want to dwell on it too long, but I, I do think it's an interesting case. Um, a lot of times you'll see uh, industries, you know, they'll, they'll invest in things that have a direct or direct return, whereas it seems like the groups here are investing in things that may not provide the direct return more so to them, but it, it builds that base for them, such as like the whole health, different initiatives at a grassroots level that, that really, you know, the trails, the infrastructure, you know, it's not necessarily training directly or anything, but it's, it's the infrastructure that they're placing there. So you don't get that one-time return. It's, it's multiple, you know, multiple generations see that return. Um, it just seems a little different than, than what we're used to seeing. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think in part you've had to, because we're in a smaller state. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, a small region in the sense that we're not having a large city. So without this level of coordination and uh, investing directly in these services, it wouldn't have naturally just occurred. Uh, here in Northwest Arkansas, and for these companies to be able to grow and prosper here in Northwest Arkansas, they need to be able to compete with regions that are much larger um, and have the ability to organically invest in these types of amenities. So we've had to, you know, jumpstart that process here in Northwest Arkansas to be able to compete with big cities across this country. It seems like the decision making that a lot of you know, business leaders and community leaders focus on is um, the quality of life aspects of it, because, you know, where you where you live and where you invest is largely based on your employees and based on your customers. And do you do you see that those amenities and those investments that both the public sector and the private sector have made are being the key, the key reason why the Northwest Arkansas region has grown so rapidly? Or is it a combination of the demand for jobs and the fact that there's there's a natural aesthetic um, that can be harnessed um, that's just really just unique to that place? Yeah, uh, so I think it's I would say that you know the growth that we've had here in North Arkansas maybe in the '90s and early part of the 2000s was driven by the jobs that are available. So these companies were growing really rapidly at that time, and they were adding a lot of employees. Um, and so they were attracting people to come work here in Northwest Arkansas, even before we had the level of amenities that we have. Um, and then at some point, you know, the mid to late 2000s, um, they realized that there's sort of be a ceiling for how much they can grow uh, by just offering a job here in Northwest Arkansas. That's when you saw in the past decade, decade and a half, a lot of investments in placemaking because uh, once you tap the resource pool of everybody that you can just attract here, because we have good schools, um, you know, low cost of living, then you need to attract that next level of talent that might, especially with the generations turning over, that was not, you know, just good schools and uh, low cost of living wasn't enough. Um, I don't want to use the word millennials, but it was a big push towards getting millennials to move here as well. Who had a different value system they wanted not just you know good schools and low cost of living but they also wanted all these different amenities and they were willing to make some trades for that they would pay a higher cost of living to have the level of amenities um that north of sharkens did not have at the time so i think you know community leaders here realized that if you want to continue to grow you're going to have to attract 
a newer generation with different tastes than previous generations and to a certain extent those amenities and uh, the investment in amenities here in Northwest Arkansas have gone towards improving those, um, you know, to try to attract uh, younger people to move here. Um, you know, people who are having children later, not forming households as fast. So the entire social uh, infrastructure that you have around that is different than simply trying to attract families with two children or something like mm. that. There's a lot of arguments to be made that cities and county governments um, or really public institutions um, have a, a core purpose, which is providing services, um, services that you would not individually provide for yourselves or, um, you know, by neighborhood or by individuals. And then uh, at the same time, then you have in the public sector um, corporations that are set up to provide a return on investment and uh, an extension of services that uh, that serve their customers' needs. How do you see that interface between the public and the private sector, both how it's established now um, in our current economic conditions, and how do you see that changing or playing out in the future? I think there's, uh, at this point, no doubt that there's significant overlap between the role of the public sector and private sector. You are seeing the public sector investing in you know, initiatives that lead to private sector growth, and you're seeing the private sector uh, invest in initiatives that lead to uh, general public goods. So you're seeing, you know, traditionally, like you said, public goods like education or roads or trash pickup and police and fire have been the purview of what would be city and local governments, but they're doing a lot more than that on economic development and placemaking and all these things which have direct benefits to uh, the private sector and the private sector in return has been also, you know, uh, investing in placemaking, trying to coordinate uh, amenities like the regional trails or, you know, roads or, you know, even water and sewer initiatives here in Northwest Arkansas that have, you know, you and I as consumers use water and sewer, but so do the industry around here. And so all of that uh, interplay it, you know, is not the traditional roles for businesses in public sector. I think there's been quite a bit of overlap, and I think it's generally worked out fine. I don't know that we need to go back to a time when everybody stayed in their lane or something. I think it's working out yeah. where you're getting these cross-sector partnerships and it's bringing benefits. Not not every one of these works, obviously, but, uh, you know, I think in general they are working. Is it a, a cause of the profits and the overall, um, not say affluence, I think that's the wrong word, but the, the difference in the injection of capital that's occurred in the last 15 to 20 years that's provided that. And and, and my, my only counter is, are there other parts of Arkansas that have a lot of the same maybe core economic underpinnings that just don't have those major corporations um, that are missing out on, missing out on just the jobs and the amenities uh, but just the the overflow of capital um, that's spread across the community. Well, certainly the Fortune 500s based here are certainly um, wealthier and more profitable than the Fortune 500s necessarily based in other parts of Arkansas. Um, but it certainly helped, you know, the only other major metro area here, Central Arkansas, is much larger. And it certainly helped. And they do have Fortune 500 companies headquartered there. Uh, which are smaller than the ones here, um, but they're working with a more diffuse and larger area. And so it's harder to get all of those competing inter mm. interests 
uh, aligned in a way that was easier here in the 90s. We were much smaller and you had your three companies pushing together and it was easier to coordinate among a smaller group of people than it would have been in an established uh, place that had its own, uh, you know, way of doing things and uh, systems and processes for someone to come after the fact and try to uh, create these partnerships. And, you know, again, um, there were longstanding issues in some of those other areas in our state as well that were not resolved. And so like North of Arkansas had sort of a cleaner slate to start with in that sense. And that has really helped. Very interesting. So I've heard you talk uh, before on various macroeconomic topics, but recently heard you on a panel discussion, fairly recently, for the ULI, Urban Land Institute, uh, in relation to real estate development as it relates to uh, kind of more at the regional level. Could you explain kind of your interest in real estate development and how you've, you kind of correlate the two uh, with the economics, your, your background in economics? Yeah, so I think my initial interest in real estate economics really comes from uh, a study that we have done at our center since about 2004, which is called Skyline Report. It's sponsored by Harvest Bank and uh, basically is an in-depth uh, analysis of the real estate market here in North Dish, Arkansas, residential and commercial. Um, and so, you know, when you have access to that much data, you don't just want to report on the data that you have. You, Start to want to do some of this and understand what the different issues were, and you know that that changes uh, depending on which decade you're looking at. So when we started this in 2004, uh, by 2006 we were looking at you know overbuilding uh, on the residential side being the concern that was that we were trying to put forward for the community. Um, and you know somewhere around 2014 you have the reverse problem where we're seeing the population is growing since. Uh, after the recession in 2012 and 2013, but homes, and, and at that point, most of the over underutilized subdivisions or unsold houses and subdivisions are gone at that point, but builders are not coming back into the market um, and building to keep up with the population growth. So you have a situation, okay, for the, you know, one decade or six to seven years in the 2000s, we overbuilt. Uh, and then in starting 2012, population started growing again, but we're not building enough housing and we've taken up that stock of overbuilt housing real quickly, uh, seeing prices escalate. So that was, you know, looking at this data, you know, what we can do is just be neutral about it and say, okay, here's what it is to this month to this month or this half to this half and just say, here's the data. But we, you know, thought that maybe it would be useful to look at what policy measures uh, should come to play to address these different uh, issues. So, you know, we weren't necessarily proposing anything in the 2006 when we were overbuilding homes other than saying uh, we are overbuilding homes at this point. Um, but starting in 2014, when we were underbuilding uh, and seeing price increases as fast as we've seen in the past uh, several years, you know, I started raising the question about what should the city do? Obviously, uh, I don't think any city here in North East Arkansas doesn't want to grow into the future. We want our region to continue growing into the future. So how should we grow? You know, how much sprawl are we going to have in this region? What the social costs and economic costs of that sprawl is going to be? Uh, what what responsibility do the cities, the major cities, Fayetteville, Springdale, Benton, and Rogers have to accommodate the future growth that's coming? So, 
you have placemaking initiatives, you build trails, restaurants, bars, all of these nice amenities, parks. They're all in cities. They're all close to the cores of those cities. Uh, people want to use them. Do they really need to get in a car and drive 30 minutes to use them, or can they find a different way to get there? Um, you know, I think you look at, at the trail usage in Northwest Arkansas, the greatest usage of the trails often comes from people driving to the trails with their bicycles on their truck or car and then riding on the trails. You know, wonderful that that is being used that way, but how do we think about how our city should be designed so people don't have to get in a car to get on a bicycle trail, they can just ride to the trail? How do we build that uh, connectivity out? So I think that's the kind of, you know, next level that we want to look at in terms of policy and that we've been advocating for is to try to figure out okay we have these amenities we have a cost of living issue now because home prices are going up but we also have issues with the you know sustainability of all infrastructure costs if we continue sprawling and we're diminishing the returns that we could get from some of these amenities that we've invested in if we continue to let sprawl happen here in northwest arkansas so i think all of those um things kind of play together in real estate not just being okay this is what average home prices in, in a given year and we're overbuilt or we're underbuilt and stopping there yeah. knowing that there's different economic incentives between different groups from the public sector private sector and, and just generally the, the public um at large um what are the types of obviously a complex uh profession what are some of the very simplistic things that community leaders and and you know, everyday citizens should know about the field of economics and the field of um, the intersection between real estate and economics that you think most people should know? Well, um, there's certainly, I think, and you think about incentives to, on the development side of it, uh, you know, there's the traditional straight cash incentive but there's also the way we don't traditionally think about it, which is policies. And so policies can act as incentives in the sense that if you, um, and we've seen this and the change has been coming in Northwest Arkansas, but like they're very, uh, I don't want to use the word strict, but like a lot of detail in rulemaking and ordinances for how homes should be built on a lot, mm -hmm. right? And every one of those, you know, might have some justification, might not have some justification, but they each add some amount of cost to be able to doing a development project in a certain piece of land. So you have to come to the city to get a bunch of different variances each single time you try to get variance. It allows for opposition and so on and so forth. And you, so, you know, you're looking at development costs to when you acquire a piece of land to when you can actually build it all of that time you're paying for the piece of land and that development cost is going to go into the home when it's eventually built. Um, and so we need to, you know, from the incentives perspective, you know, there are straight incentives that cities sometimes do. They help with development or utilities or something like that to help make a development happen. Uh, but there are a lot of more broad-based incentives that they really should be looking at when it comes to zoning, where they allow certain kinds of uses, um, residential use. It's all very, you know, uh, outside of the downtown areas and some commercial cores, you generally have very segregated uses for um, most of our cities. And 
that's a question that needs to be asked. And, you know, that's a question that cities really need to look at and change that. That makes more land available for different mm-hmm. uses, particularly yeah. residential ones. So that's an incentive that makes more land available for residential uses that are currently just strictly commercial core, uh, which again, improves the availability of land, which should reduce the price of land. And then there's all those different rules that we have about, you know, how much of a lot size they should occupy and, you know, what they, all of these different rules that really we need to look at and understand, you know, do we need to have, payable does not have parking minimums. Other cities have parking minimums uh, and, you know, like, do we really need all this parking? And so you drive around our cities, uh, you see these commercial cores, the vast majority of the year, um, all of that asphalt is sitting empty in front of those businesses that could be thriving with some other use. Yeah, sure. um, maybe two times a year, you know, Black Friday and the day before Christmas, those parking lots are full, but the rest of the time they're not. Yeah. Um, so those are incentives, uh, you know, that you don't think about. And then on the customer side, um, this is something you think about a lot in economics is the full price of, you know, carrying out a certain action. You see people buy homes in far further places that are further from their jobs and uh, schools or amenities and everything because the sticker price of that house is lower. Uh, But getting them to understand that, you know, yes, the sticker price is lower, but this is what it'll cost you in fuel and car maintenance and all these different things. Uh, you know, the closer you live to the core, the less likely you are to need more than one car or closer mm-hmm. you live to your, your job and all of these things, the more likely you are to need more than one car. Mm-hmm. The less you spend on your car, the less maintenance, less fuel and all of these things all add up on an annual basis. So you're just looking at, okay, well, this house is 200,000, this house is 250,000. I'm going to go with the one that's 200,000 over a 30-year time period, but I'm going to spend you know, easily $1,500 to $2,000 more um, each year than if I bought the $250,000 house that was closer to my job, closer to the schools, closer to the amenities. So uh, again, those are not calculations people consciously make uh, when they're making the home purchase. First, I like this neighborhood, do I like this house? And then if you're looking at the price, you're just looking at the price and not thinking everything else that goes with it. and getting, you know, educating people on that point, I think really helps. We've seen some metrics out there, housing and transportation costs. We have some of the highest, even though we don't, we're, we don't have the highest home prices in North of Charlotte, so compared to big metro areas, we have the highest home and transportation costs uh, here in North of Charlotte. Uh, I think on average, it's more than 50% of people's incomes here. So, uh, and that comes down, of- yeah, that yeah. comes down to owning, you know, home prices have gone up in the last two years. Uh, and you own two, own maintain two cars. That you know that adds up. Mm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Is it a uniquely American um, philosophy that we externalize all of those costs, and we, um, you know, like companies you know who have maintained downtown offices, uh, but will willingly hire from anywhere in the region as long as someone can commute? Um, you you put very succinctly that th- those costs aren't. Um, born usually by the mortgage. Uh, they're not born by the employer, uh, but by the individual, uh, you know, in commuting and in sacrificing for amenities. Uh, what are the tools that are out there for people to determine what their actual um, 
internalized cost of suburban living might be. Yeah, I think I don't I don't know that this is a uniquely American perspective. It certainly um, is where uh, you see a lot of this, but it's not that other people haven't copied. I grew up in Dubai in terms of development, copied some of the very worst of uh, American <laughs> suburbanism. Um, and, you know, so I don't think America was like this until, you know, highway construction and suburbs and all of that happened in the 60s and 70s. So it's not uniquely American. This There's no way to say that this is particularly American. It's not even 100 years old, this idea of how we live today. Yeah. Um, so we used to live differently. Our cities looked more like European cities and, you know, they were more compact. People lived closer to their jobs. People didn't have as many personal cars, didn't drive as much to get to their jobs. Um, and that's changed in the last 50, 60 years. So it's, it doesn't have to be that way. We can, you know, like we chose in the 60s and 70s to live this way that we're living now, we can choose now to live uh, like we did before the 50s and 60s. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's, it is not, I think people ascribe all these things to like some immutable culture. But I think the fact of the matter is that culture changes. Our culture has changed even within the last decade and two decades. So there's nothing to say that, oh, this is uniquely American culture. It isn't. Mm-hmm. We didn't live this way uh, until, you know, recently, if you will. Um, so there's nothing to make, nothing to stop us from going back to the way we were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to go back a little bit further. We talked about, you talked about incentives um, and they're not always financial. There's always public policy policy uh, incentives that a lot of people don't necessarily think of. Um, and, and some of the cities down here are starting to integrate some of those, like Fayetteville, if there's a certain percentage of added impervious area, then you can bypass, you know, basically the, the greater site planning process, which definitely helps out with your time. Right. And kind of encourages that infill development that they want. Um, So there's there's all sorts of things uh, from a from a public perspective. Are there any other ones that we haven't discussed that maybe some others haven't thought about yet as far as incentives go? I was thinking about more recently, you know, like we've been talking about, you know, building sort of in a different way than than we have in the past decades and i think outside of city zoning policy uh, the single biggest driver of how residential development happens in many communities including here in northwest arkansas is the decisions of school boards on where they place schools and there are by and large in northwest arkansas which you've seen happen over the past few decades is that schools find the cheapest land available to build the school that they want on the largest land area. Um, And those two things have driven development of residential properties to those edges of our towns because the school board is looking for 15, 25, 35 acres to build. That's not easy to find close to downtowns or close to commercial course, close to where people already live. So they put the schools further and further away from where people live which then drives housing development out there. And you have contentious fights uh, every 10 years or so in school 
you know, district maps are redrawn. And then now you have people driving clear across town to take their kids to elementary school and uh, junior high and high school and all of these different things. And, you know, there's, there are two separate local entities. The city government is different. The school board government is different. They don't generally talk to each other. Uh, they don't, you know, they say they don't want to step on each other's toes. But like at the end of the day, the two need, you know, like I said, they're the two of the largest drivers of residential development here. And if the if what we want is compact neighborhoods, you know, compact cities that are sustainable from an infrastructure perspective, we can't continue developing schools the way that we have been developing single story sprawling campuses on the edges of town. When you can have schools that are perfectly successful, perfectly nice, that used to be built this way. So you think about Washington Elementary in uh, Fayetteville. It's a school that's downtown in downtown Fayetteville. It's a multi-story building. It's neatly situated within the neighborhood that it is in. And people, you know, a lot of people uh, walk or have their kids bike to these schools. And that is really not possible at some of these other schools. You're crossing major streets. Uh, you're having to go clear across town for 30 minutes to get to a school. Um, those are not sustainable ways to... Uh, build these schools and some of these schools that are even built further out than the subdivision grew up around them these subdivisions are built on such curvy paths that it would take you 25 minutes if you tried to walk uh, because the sidewalks just like loop all the way around the neighborhood before they get to your school so uh, you know, I've been for example around some of my friends live by Holcomb Elementary uh, out and you know I see where the school is and I see where the houses are and I try to figure out how can their kid walk to the school and it's you know is and it is an ordeal uh, because there's just no way, you know, yes, there are sidewalks, but there's no real connectivity. Um, you literally have to tour the entire subdivision to get to the school mm-hmm. when a straighter uh, path would have made that a lot easier. Um, so uh, there, there, there needs to be, and, you know, there's some of this argument that the state uh, has some guidelines about what the size of school should be. First of all, their guidelines are not rules. Uh, so we don't need to follow those guidelines and maybe the state should change their guidelines too. There's no reason schools need to be 25 acres or 35 acres or 40 acres or whatever they want. They, they can be compact. They're perfectly successful in compact formats. Like I mentioned, Washington Elementary and Fayetteville and Fox Hall and downtown Rogers. It's a multi-story building. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I can tell, kids are getting just fine, uh, getting a perfectly fine, reasonable education in both places. Uh, so we've talked about the uh, the incentives that aren't um, related to financial pieces but but looking at public private partnerships more like like tiffs or other types of uh, funding mechanisms that cities have used in the in the past with, with success do you see those as being uh, successful in large part uh, to for both the developer and the city and the public at large, or is there there flaws in that system that you've seen? Or I, I guess I'm just curious about um, why or what what thresholds uh, allow for or or don't allow for for that type of funding mechanism to take place, and what are the drawbacks? I think the major drawback with the TIF district here in Northwest Arkansas is that there was one large one tried at the worst possible time in 2008 and it failed spectacularly. 
and as a result, you know, the enabling legislation is still there. It's not illegal to build a turf. It's just nobody's wanted to touch uh, that since that one failed so spectacularly. So, um, but I think, you know, uh, we really need to, as a region, get over that and say, okay, well, that was one project. You know, we can argue about the merits of the project. There was also the you know, whole financial crisis and housing bust that happened at the end of that project was supposed to happen. So, I think we need to move on. We need to, other communities have used TIF successfully. It's not, you know, a perfect tool for every instance, uh, but other communities have used TIF, uh, you know, successfully, and we should look at that. The other public-private partnerships that I've seen have been around developing affordable housing. We've had a couple of projects uh, from Washington County that have, you know, supported low-income housing tax credit type developments, uh, two of them happening here in Fayetteville. Uh, we had the partners from Better Housing, the development uh, again in Fayetteville that was being built with support from the city on the infrastructure side that helped subsidize the home building. So we've seen public-private partnerships, but they tend to be smaller because you're not using the full tool set that you could use with tip districts and things like that. So uh, yeah, I mean, like we've had some, you know, recent examples of public-private partnerships there on development, but uh, not as much as we should have. And I think some of these, you know, as I was talking about schools just earlier, we talk about we want to build, you know, new community centers and anchors. And we would typically think, oh, development, it should have retail, it should maybe have some offices and so on and so forth. But, you know, schools are as much as anything also a neighborhood hub. And, you know, a lot of people utilize these uh, facilities every single day. And, you know, so there's nothing wrong with also, you know, offices, mixed use retail and schools being part of what drives the development around a compact neighborhood, which then gets you all the advantages of, you know, people being able to use, up, you know, means other than their cars to get to schools or the offices or to uh, retail developments. And also it, you know, increases the property tax collections, which are really important to schools. Our four cities are essentially landlocked by other big cities. So unless you want to really engage in hostile annexations of other big cities, the property tax base for the schools in um, Northwest Arkansas is going to diminish over time. The, uh, so if you, as a school, want to continue to have higher property tax collections, you need to increase the value of the land around you. And the way you would do that is by building in more compact fashion so the property tax that you can collect at the same property tax rate from each parcel of land that is greater than the way we're doing it right now. So I think that a lot of, you know, there's there needs to be more public-private partnerships. There also needs to be more public-public partnerships between different entities um, that are public working together to make some of these things happen. If you were to make one policy suggestion uh, to change the trajectory of a city um, or of a region, um, because we, we have listeners from all over the United States and, and abroad, and if, if they're looking for a suggestion of maybe one thing or a couple of things, uh, that would be that kind of shot in the arm um, to get a community off of high center, what would you suggest? Um, I think I would start by, you know, maybe abolishing what we call the, con you know, consider the traditional commercial core. Like there's no reason why we need to continue to have just commercial uses in one place and residential uses in another place. So, Politically, it's a lot harder to convert residential uses to something else. We should do that too. It's a lot easier. It should be a lot easier politically to 
convert, you know, from just strict commercial uses and allow residential uses within those areas. So uh, that would be, you know, sort of my low hanging fruit that obviously is related to, um, you know, removing parking minimums from some of these places so that space can be used uh, for residential development. And then, you know, sort of the higher order from there is to try to work out. Um, you've seen varying levels of success in different places attempts to remove single family zoning as being you know single family housing as being the default zoning um, to allow duplexes triplexes fourplexes by right in most places and that should help again improve the homes and finally you know uh, at least through most of the middle part of this country think about how we develop schools in our cities and why our schools can't be multi-story uh, facilities that are part of the core of the town and not sprawling campuses away from the core of the town oh, great suggestions so this is we've been looking mostly at the the city and the regional level kind of want to take a, a step back and, and look at the national and maybe worldview of where we're at economically and the current, you know, financial condition of, of, uh, of the economics here at the U S mainly, but how do you see all these macroscopic trends, uh, in economics affecting real estate more at the, the regional level? There's rising construction costs, rising interest rates. How does, how do you see that impacting at the regional and local levels? So at least nationally, you know, the rising interest rates uh, have pushed commercial loan rates up. Um, you've seen a dramatic decline in building nationally. Um, and, you know, people are building far fewer homes, there are fewer commercial projects being authorized and so on and so forth. That hasn't quite happened here in Northwest Arkansas. Um, even with the rates going up, commercial loan rates going up, we're still seeing commercial construction keep up. People are building a lot of uh, new uh, commercial developments, whether that's hotels or car dealerships to warehouses, to office buildings, all kinds of development here in Northwest Arkansas, which is different uh, macroeconomically than what you see going on in uh, the country as a whole. Now, home building is still going on in Northwest Arkansas, dropped off a cliff, uh, but the pace of completion is slowed down some, so builders are not motivated. So two years ago or a year ago, even at this time, builders have been very motivated to finish the home as fast as possible to get that home on market and they're more likely to be slower in developing their homes in this um, uh, uh, now because they're hoping to see if the mortgage rates go down or there's a slight break in mortgage rates or something like that that they're trying to wait for so those conditions do affect us now obviously in the past week or so we've seen other financial um, sector challenges uh, which, in my estimation, would mean that we would see tighter lending standards. So, um, you know, if we haven't already seen, uh, to the extent that we've seen, you know, commercial development and residential development dropping off because rates are going higher, I think the lending standards, in addition to rates already being higher, lending standards are going to get a lot tighter. Banks are going to make more uh demands on developments that they fund and as a result there's going to be fewer of them because banks don't want to banks are going to be a lot they want to loan out money in this uh with the financial conditions the way they are in the past week 
right. recognizing that we were probably on the edge of a bubble for a while on the housing side. Do you see the slowdown as a a, a relief uh, in what was kind of a hot market? Or do you think that there's some systemic underpinnings that will um, keep this kind of recessionary um, environment moving forward? So I'm reluctant to say that we were in a bubble. Um, yes, home prices grew extremely rapidly. Um, you know, in the first half of 2022, I think you're looking at close to 30% increase in home prices here in North Shore, Arkansas. So that uh, is a ridiculous increase in home prices. But at the end of the day, those homes were all sold. Um, there weren't houses sitting unsold. And even today, uh, there aren't houses sitting unsold. So the issue, I think, that 19 into 20, maybe a little bit in 2018, but 2019, and then starting in 2020 and quickly stopped after, was that after underbuilding homes for about a decade here in North Shore, Arkansas, we started building enough to meet the needs of everybody coming in that year. And since then we've slowed. So we had a decade's worth of underbuilding in 2018, maybe in 2019, we built enough for the people that came in 2018, 2019, never mind all the people that came in the eight years before that. And then since then we've slowed again too. So Northern Arkansas has continued to grow, you know, two, two and a half percent year over year. So there's a lot of people continue to move here. Um, and you know, if you don't build as much home, so people are not not moving to Northern Arkansas. So for as long as that is true, and if you don't build homes, then the natural thing that will happen is that home prices will continue to go up. So in spite of mortgage rates being as high as they are, you've seen home price declines in some metros. Uh, you've seen rental, definitely seen rental uh, lease rate declines in other metros. We've not seen that here in North of Arkansas. So home prices last year went up 30%. This year, they went up 165 or 15%. So uh, yes, it's the home price increases slow, but they didn't decrease. And the 16.5% was the rate of increase that we saw in 21 and 20. So it's not, uh, we're not back to the previous, uh, how fast it was going in 2018, 2019. It was home prices were going up 8% every year. Uh, and then rents in other metro areas have certainly declined in some places declined by double digits here in North and Arkansas in the last year, rents have climbed 17 to 18%. Uh, so you continue to see an influx of people to Northwest Arkansas, not enough housing being developed to house all of them. Uh, you know, those prices are going to continue to go up um, until we resolve the supply issue to meet all the demand. Because we don't want to tell people to not move here. So you know, obviously you can resolve the demand by saying, don't come here. That's not what we want. Some people, right. are, not me. <laughs> right. Well, uh, looking looking forward, you you're very active, not only in our community in Northwest Arkansas, but regionally and in the state. What do you see as being your legacy here, um, not only in the state, but with with everything you pushed? Um, from the economic standpoint and, and trying to get the word out and make the economics of not only, you know, real estate, but economics as a whole more accessible for those lay, lay people like, like myself that aren't as in tune with the, the macro numbers. How do you, what do you see your legacy being um, 
as we move forward. Say we looked you up in, in 200, 300 years. Um, you know, Wikipedia might not make it then. They, they keep asking for my money, so I'm not sure if they're going to make it. But if I were to, if they were still there and, and we looked you up, uh, what, what would it say about you and your legacy? I hope no one remembers me in 200, 300 years. <laughs> never have done something that consequential. Um, no, Don't I mean, I think, uh, I think, you know, if we're able to, you know, using the data that we've had here in North Shark and we're obviously at the point of trying to raise the affordability here in North Shark and and we've always had this perception that North Shark and is affordable, which is why people move here. And being able to see that earlier than most people and say, hey, this is a growing issue. And now it's widely accepted that it is an issue in North Arkansas. So that's wonderful um, that people listen to us. But, you know, the next, it's of no use to me if we don't actually follow through and do something about it, like um, address affordability by making housing cheaper here in North Arkansas. So if that ever happens, people will follow through on these positive proposals that center and others are pushing uh i'll i'll smile at some point in the next 10 years uh, about it but i think outside of that you know i'm not <laughs> really uh interested in any long-term legacies in that fair enough fair enough well is there is there any questions that that we should be asking that that we haven't yet and um and and you want to talk further on, on the subject? I think we've covered a lot. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, do you have any uh, parting words of advice for for those uh, primarily in the real estate market field? Yeah, I think my advice would be that a lot more of us need to get engaged in the public policy process. It's not just you know every four years for a mayor's race, but each city council race, uh, be involved in planning commissions, and as it turns out, school boards as well, um, to try to get some of this coordinated action to happen in Northwest Arkansas and then advocate to the cities that they need to. You know, there is some sort of, like I said, friendly competition between the four cities, but at a certain point, you got to have the four big cities come up with a housing compact here in North Shore and try to determine. So if projections are accurate and we're gonna have a million people in 30 years, where do we put them? Um, you know, what does the growth look like? Cause if it's the pattern that it's been in the past 10 years, that's not gonna be very nice uh, going forward. So how do we, you know, you really need to have the cities take responsibility for saying, okay, well, this is how much housing I want to provide in this city and these are the you know steps i'm taking to make sure that that happens and it's not just one of these plans that sits on the shelf and says oh we've made a nice 2040 plan and it doesn't actually get followed through on but actually setting goals to say this is how much housing we want to produce in the city and meeting those metrics it's very solid advice definitely getting involved uh has has a big impact obviously locally but it, it can expand to the region um and it's it's something that i feel like we we lack i mean in our area it seems like we've we've gotten some um younger constituents that are are looking to get involved but it it seems like there's still 
a need for some some fresh ideas, right? Mm -hmm. um, Mark, did you have any further questions? Last questions? Do you think that you would run for office yourself? <laughs> um, I don't see myself doing that now. <laughs> so yes, I, uh, it's uh, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I felt the same thing, and I've I've been approached by a lot of. Uh, you know, folks who have been in, uh, you know, activism and advocacy for a long time. And it's a common question because we we want so much for the change to occur, but where we have some expertise in a field and we can see the need to inject, you know, smart, thoughtful policies. Um, it, it, I think that there's a hesitation for a lot of us because of the exposure that running for office um, causes uh, for your life, both personal and professional. Um, but some of the folks that I've seen enter public life, um, exit public life very jaded, and I think a little more cynical, that it is difficult and hard to get things done to affect change. And I, I do love your suggestion of um, finding policies to advocate for, because we need more advocates. If you're not gonna run for office, you know, push push your cities, push your existing city leaders to recognize the things that you care about and make those a priority. So um, we don't all have to run for office, but I, I love the idea of advocacy and uh, inspiring those around you. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, look forward to reading more of of your work and listening uh, more of your uh, your appearances. And uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me on.